0: And basically our job there was to stop the peacewomen from entering or trying to get access to the Greenham Common Gamma, because if they got access to the Gamma, they would have been shot.
1: This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list to keep up with the latest episode. Following his RAF Regiment officer training, Trevor Howey was posted to 34 Squadron at RAF Akrotiri in Cyprus, commanding sea flight. The RAF Regiment was effectively the Royal Air Force's infantry, tasked with providing ground defence for air operations. 34 Squadron had a dual role of providing defence at Akrotiri as well as in the event of war at RAF Wildenrath in Germany. Trevor vividly describes his time at Akrotiri including terrorist threats and realistic anti-riot training exercises where the enthusiasm of the Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders required a hospital war to be kept available for casualties. In 1986 Trevor became involved in nuclear weapons security training where his training techniques were the subject of a number of complaints. His service also included stints at RAF Greenham Common, where he describes providing support to the US nuclear armed cruise missile deployment. Don't miss next week's episode where Trevor is deployed to RAF Gatow in West Berlin. Now, Cold War history is disappearing, but a simple monthly donation will help keep this podcast on the air. You'll be part of our community, you'll get a sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Hi, I'm Sean from Perth, Western Australia, and I support the Cold War Conversations podcast because these are the real stories of the world I grew up in, and we are uniquely privileged to record the experiences and thoughts of the people who are actually part of the shaping of our lives. If a monthly contribution is not your cup of tea, we also welcome one-off donations via coldwarconversations.com slash donate. I'm delighted to welcome Trevor Howie to our Cold War Conversation.
0: Well, I'd completed my uh, junior regiment officer's training at RF Patrick, our, our regimental depot, and I completed that in the coldest winter Britain has ever had, minus 26 we were out in our final exercise. We couldn't get out of Catrick um, because there was just snow drifts everywhere, and we had to have our final exercise on camp at uh, Oren Park on the north side of uh, RAF Catrick, and it was minus 26. It was horrendously cold. And then I get posted to RAF Akrotiri in Cyprus. So I went from the coldest winter Britain has ever had to a beautiful Uh, Mediterranean winter on the Akrotiri Peninsula in Cyprus
1: Can you just explain the status of these bases in Cyprus?
0: In, In Cyprus you have what are called the Sovereign Base Areas, there's two of them, there's the Western Sovereign Base Area and the Eastern Sovereign Base Area and these are basically British administered territories that have been excised from Cyprus so uh Decalia, on the eastern Sovereign Base area, they have a resident battalion up there, and there's also IS Nicolais, which is a signals unit, RAF signals unit and an army signals unit out of IS Nicolais. On the western Sovereign Base area, uh, you have the Akrotiri Peninsula, which is a peninsula that comes down to the south from Limassol, which is one of the main towns in, in Cyprus, and it has a massive salt lake in the middle of it, And to the south of that is RAF Akrotiri, which is a big RAF base. To the um, west of that is Episcopi, where the army uh, headquarters is and the headquarters for Cyprus, so the joint headquarters in in Cyprus there. And so you have a resident battalion also in Episcopi. So you have those two sovereign base areas, which are basically British-controlled areas, and then also up in the Trudos Mountains, Mount Olympus, we also have a large radar site there for air traffic control and fighter control. So it's a really unusual situation um, having a, a sovereign country that has quite large areas are taken out of its control for military purposes um, with those two SBAs. And then we also had the Akamas Peninsula up in the, uh, the the extreme west of the island, which we used as a massive training area for live firing, both with armour and uh, and down to, uh, to individual weapons down there. You could train company level, you know, uh, live firing. It was brilliant. But, yeah, so it's an unusual situation there. Um, but you have two resin battalions, mm-hmm. and then you have this massive air base, um, quite a strategic air base there on the uh, the south of the Akrotiri Peninsula.
1: What was your what was your role there?
0: I was a flight commander. We had a, a squadron, 34 squadron, which was the RAF regiment squadron based at Akrotiri, and we were responsible for the internal security and defending the base against any internal security threat that we may have had in uh, uh, at Akrotiri. And my job was a, a flight commander or an army parlance, uh, a platoon commander. So as a young 20-odd-year-old, I had 35 men, 36 men under my command, um, you know, with a, a flight sergeant, various sergeants, section commanders. And basically we did an infantry role. We... Um, Two weeks out of every six, we'd be on quick reaction force. Um, So my flight would be on patrolling the base, have a quick reaction force. We'd man the uh, operations centre and we'd patrol both on foot, vehicle, heliborne patrols. And later they had um, RIBS, rigid uh, raiders, which they'd use for seaborne patrols as well. So that was uh, two weeks out of every six we'd do that. And then you do the normal thing that, that that infantry type units do. We'd train for war. We'd train for our internal security with riot control training. Uh, we'd exercise, and then every year we'd go off to Germany for a few weeks um, to do uh, our main operating base. Normally during a tactical evaluation of that base to practice our war role. When I arrived at 34, the regiment was just converting to up back into armour. Before that, we were field squadrons, so we had the um, 81mm mortar. But um, in the early 80s, we um, re-rolled into a light armoured squadron with the CVRT system. So we had the the Spartan APC, the Scorpion 76mm armoured infantry fighting vehicle. So we had the suite of of the CVRT. So we rolled as a light armoured squadron, as did all of the other field squadrons in the regiment at that time. So when I got there, we were basically converting onto armour. So we had to design training packages to convert all of our troops into going from land Rover borne operations to armoured mech infantry type of operations. And we used those on the base as well. Though we only had a third of our equipment, because two-thirds of it was used by the Light Armoured Training Squadron at Catrick to train personnel over there. But when we came to exercise our war role in Wildenrath, they would bring the other two-thirds of our vehicles over to Wildenrath and we would then marry up with them so we could uh, do our war role with our complete suite of equipment. Each regiment squadron had a full engineering support. We, The regiment squadrons were, were fully self-sufficient. We had our own armourers. We had our own mechanics and engineers. We had our own medics. We had our own cooks. Our own admin staff. So when we deployed, we were completely self-sufficient. We didn't need catering corps or the REME or anyone else. We, when we deployed, we deployed with everything and every, basically uh, every trade that we needed to support us in the field. So that that was probably a unique thing of our structure in the RF Regiment, is that we were 100% fully self-sufficient within that squadron organization. The squadron medics were good because the squadron morning officer liked them because on a morning on parade, everyone would come in sick and they'd send them to the squadron medic first and the medic would go, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, no, back to work, back to work, back to work, back to work. So he would weed, weed out all the malingerers at that time. Unfortunately, now we've lost our medics, which is a shame because they were a great asset on the squadron for uh, weeding out malingerers and those that didn't want to do the day's work
1: and and talking of discipline, tell me about the uh, flight orderly room.
0: Orderly rooms, yeah. When you go through officer training, um, you you go through obviously Air Force law, and you practice doing orderly rooms. And orderly rooms is like a small court where you, as a flight commander, are the judge, jury, and executioner. And you get your airmen, a typical airman, they get in the trouble, they get charged, uh, and they get charged. For various offences, drunk on duty, fighting, right up to the most heinous crimes you can do. Yeah, you know, yeah. You know. So every month you'd have your orderly room, and you'd get all the lads would come in who've been charged. Lateness was one of my things. If someone was late, he'd get a warning. If they were late again, they'd be charged. And so it's small misdemeanour time stuff. But you come in, and they'd be marched in by the flight sergeant. You'd read out the charges to them. They were able to defend themselves against it. They were able to bring someone in to defend them if they want. Then you'd sit there way up, whether they were guilty or not. But if they're being marched into you, generally speaking, they've been guilty of something. And then you would apportion punishment or not. And as a flight commander, I think I could give four days jankers, which is restrictions of duties, where the warrant officer would get them, he'd make them do nasty jobs all day, cleaning up, building sangers, you know They'd have to report in full uniform X amount of times a day to the guard room. As the level of um, seriousness of offence went up, it got beyond you. So you would remand them to the squadron commander's orderly room so he could deal with them. And that's normally where someone's committed actual bodily harm, GBH, something like that, or a more serious offence. There was one occasion where there was a massive blue at the Peninsula Cup, huge blue between the, the squadron and I don't know whether it was one of the resident battalions or just REF.
1: Just translate blue. For fight. Me. Massive fight. Okay.
0: <laughs> Sorry, it's my Australianness. Uh, massive fight. And um, so all the charges ranged from just fighting right up to there was a couple with GBH, you know, grievous bodily harm, which some serious charges. And uh, at that time, the squadron commander had his orderly room and all of the flight commanders were in there, and then they were done by batches to begin with. So all those who were done for fighting would all come in, all be charged. We'd speak up for our troops and say what jolly good chaps they are and that, and then they'd all get done with seven days jankers or whatever and thrown out. And then the next ones would come up, actual bodily harm. And then we got the ones that caused grievous bodily harm, they came individually and they were remanded for court-martial uh, for those. So... So you, you, the squadron commander could put people away for twenty eight days, you know. And uh, we had one of the lads got put away. And in Cyprus, you went to the um, the resident battalion on the Western Sovereign Beres area at Episcopi. At the time we were there, the resident battalion was the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders, um, <clears throat> and they are noted for their discipline. And one of one, one of our lads went there, and uh, it was one of my lads actually, and he had to come back to see the squadron commander and. He got marched in by this group of four Argyles. They had a, a staff sergeant there and I think about four corporals. And this lad, his knees were coming up almost to his chest and it was, it was just as strict as you can get. Lo and behold, about a week later, he escaped from their lockup and went on to the run into the bush, into the Bondu, for about three days before starvation finally took over and he came skulking back. The, uh, all those guards that were on duty that night all got court-martialed and all got demoted because this young lad managed to escape from the uh, the lockup in Epi. But yeah, orderly rooms was interesting. It's something you, you train very briefly for and then you'll get the waggle come in and you always say at the end, do you accept my punishment or do you elect trial by court-martial? And you'll always get some wag saying, no, nah, I want a court-martial boss. And you say, flight sergeant, please take X out and have a chat with him. And the flight sergeant would take him out, have a chat, and then he'd come in and says, once again, X, yeah, do you accept my punishment or do you act trial by court-martial? Oh, I'll, I'll accept your punishment, boss. Okay, four days, jankers. <laughs> Off you go. <laughs> but you always got the wag who did that, who just decided play the system and, uh, and mess you about a bit. But the flight sergeant would always turn them around.
1: In addition to the armour, what other weaponry... Did you have, for example, did you have Carl Gustaf?
0: Well, we had Carl Gustav, Yeah, we we had Charlie G's. So they we had those and the 66 for the anti tank weapons. Well, we had the normal infantry weapons, we had the SLR and SMG, and we also had the GPMG, the general purpose machine gun. But on the armor, you had the um, we'd have a GPMG mounted for the um, uh, Spartan. You had a capola mounted GPMG, which was basically our standard GPMG. We'd take the the uh, the butt off, and we put a little blank plate on that would uh, go on there. But we also had the scorpions, and the scorpions had a seventy six millimeter cannon, and mounted beside it was the L forty three a coaxial machine gun. So you had a seven point six two machine gun mounted. So as the gun elevated, the machine gun elevated the same. And then we had the the seventy six millimeter gun, which had it could fire high explosive squash head rounds. It could fire um, smoke. Uh, high explosive and it could fire something they called a canister round which was like a giant shotgun and inside it had seven hundred and ninety-nine nine millimeter long bit of um pole and they've cut it off into about centimeter segments and they reckon there was seven hundred and ninety-nine in there so you shook it you could actually hear something rattle in there so you knew it was it was full. And that that was a devastating round. That was a great round the uh the, the, the canister round one of my Corporals who then became one of my sergeants on on two squadron later on. Uh, Smudger he developed a really good shoot which he showed the army the armoured corps because they'd never seen it It was called the coax canister shoot and it was basically if you came across you know an anti tank weapon or troops and that and within the the gun you had a like a a fire switch and you could switch between coax the machine gun or to uh, main armament. And if you flick that switch to coax and do the machine gun, down in the, the bottom below the, the gunner's foot was a bowed, was a, a foot firing switch for the main armament. So you could fire them both at once. So what you'd do is he would open up with the, the machine gun while the, the, the loader loaded in a canister. He'd take his finger off the bakelite firing switch, smash down with the, uh, the foot firing pedal. The canister round would go off with 799 balls going down and then immediately go on to the coax. So you got fire, loaded up with another canister, smashed down with the foot, you know, the, the, the canister round would go off. So it was an absolutely devastating shoot. And the Army had never seen this before until we showed them down at Lulworth um, when we are on the range down there, and that was uh, Smudger who, uh, who invented that little. It was a really devastating bit of firepower from uh, our quite small little tank. It was only a small little armoured infantry fighting vehicle. It was only eight tonnes
1: how far would that canister disperse? You'd probably look at about 100 metres or so, you
0: know, to be really effective, probably a little bit further. I, I can't remember the specs off the top of my head because it was a long time ago, but it was a, a close-in weapon. It was something like you were suddenly in an ambush situation. It was very effective. It was called a de, um, defoliation round. It was for clearing uh, trees and branches so you could see better because – having a 76 millimeter shotgun was seen as being not really playing fair against the enemy.
1: (laughs) But I, I think you were also, uh, practicing riot control there as well.
0: Yeah, that was great. I used to run the Carter for the riot control training. Uh, and we had a lot of it there because Cyprus was, had a lot of issues, you know, political issues. We had demonstrations at the main gate quite a few times, uh, I had one where, when we were there where we deployed to the main gate um, because a whole heap of Cypriots came in to protest about us being there, you know, basically, which is their right. It's a sovereign nation. But, yeah, we used to do a lot of right control training and uh, we had the and Sutherland Highlanders there, so they used to play rioters for us. We had one massive one down at – it was a place called Ladies Mile Picket Post on the uh, mm-hmm. eastern side of the base because Akrotiri is a huge base probably The largest base in area of any we have just because of the geographical location of it. And we had a the big salt lake in the middle, and we had one entrance to the base, and then you could gain entrance on the sand of the beach that ran, ran along Ladies Mile to Limassol. So we had a big, um, massive right control, a right training exercise down there with the whole squadron. TPMH, the, the hospital there, the military hospital, opened a ward for casualties. Because when we did right control training in the 80s, 70s and 80s and that, there was no pussyfooting around. It was full on. You know, when you got hit with a long right baton, you got hit with a long right baton. When the snatch quad got you, you got snatched and 10 bales was beaten out of you as you're being snatched. It was full on, really huge. And we had a a large number of, of Argyles writing on the other side of Ladies Mile and One of my counterparts, Steve, was uh, controlling his flight, A flight, fight, platoon level, baseline. And we had these mackerel on shields, long shields that we used to have. But because they're in Cyprus, they got pretty well degraded over time. And they're getting hit by rocks, road signs. They're setting fire to the baseline. They're throwing star pickets, which are going through the shields. But one lad kept on trying to get out, and Steve's pushing him got his foot in his backside and keeping him forward, not knowing that his mackerel and shield had snapped off at the top and snapped off at the bottom and had about a foot over his arm and that's all it was with everything coming at the poor little bugger. We had one of our sergeants was hauled off on a, uh, a stretcher because at this time we had we were firing CS grenades at them because we needed to try and control the riders. Uh, so firing live CS at them, grenades, and so we all had our respirators on and uh, Sergeant Nicky came out and he had a half brick through the eyepiece of his uh, his S6 respirator as he was carried off. We used the um, Spartans as mobile snatch squads. So when the snatch squads got rioters, they'd truss them up with um, plastic cuffs and leave them lying on the ground. And then we'd have Spartan crews come in and put them in the back. And you had these young... Argyle and Southern Highlands, trussed up, couldn't move, having eight tonne of armour bearing down at them, and it scared them witless, absolutely witless. It was a great psychological effect using those as, uh, as mobile snatch was to take them away. But we had to use CS on them because they, they were really violent writers. Um, we brought the fire engine, one of the crash tenders in, because I was setting fire to the baseline, uh, and we put body armour on the, the firemen. But in the end, we had to retreat because the stones came over and smashed the windscreens of the uh, the fire tender, and these are very expensive fire tenders, so they had to bug out. So we got the eighty-four Squadron Wessex in, flying in over low level, stirring up all the sand to disorientate them. So, yeah, when we had right control training, right training, it was full on, absolutely yeah, full on. It, it was sounds great. like it. Wow. Wow. I was coming up to the end of my tour in July of 83 when we got hit with a quite a large potential terrorist incident. We got information in that um, uh, a unit within Cyprus was going to be targeted by a Arab terrorist group, I believe it was uh, Black September, because all of that area at the time, you know, Beirut, Lebanon, Damascus, Syria, all that area was a hotbed at the time. It was really starting to brew up, um, and we believed we were targeted. So... We went on very, very high alert, um, counter terrorist alert, in there, and deployed the squadron on, on active duties for that time. I was um, allocated the airport as my primary location for for defence because we used to get the troopers in that would bring uh, British or British military and their families in and out of Cyprus would come into Akrotiri, so we'd have regular trooper flights in with the uh, VC tens. So I'd go in there a couple of hours before a trooper was due to to come in because the tactics that we were given that the terrorists were going to use was they're going to hire um, cars in Cyprus and these were called Z cars because they had a Z number plate. They would crash through one of the crash gates onto the base when there was a trooper on, and they'd use a grenade and machine gun attack to kill as many people on the pan, you know, boarding or getting off the aircraft. So that that would see. The tactics that we were given, or the, the, the threat assessment that we were given, that was likely to be uh, used against us. At that time, we had a, a Olive Harvest, the American U 2. They actually used Z cars on base uh, as chase cars for the U 2 when it came in for landing. So they judiciously kept well away from us when there was trooper time because our rules of engagement basically was if there was anything unusual came onto the pan Z car, anything like that was to engage it and then question it afterwards because the threat was that high. So it was anything comes in, it gets engaged. We'd be in there for several hours beforehand. We'd set up a GPMG SF position overlooking the whole pan. I had stripped down Land Rovers with GPMGs on louch poles, 400 rounds. All my troops were out there, so a full full platoon. We also had two Scorpions deployed, um, which also had their, the L-43 was had 400 rounds, and we had canister rounds uh, up the breach. And I believe that was the first time the Scorpions had been live-armed because we'd only just really been converted over to them uh, a couple of years previous. Uh, so they were there as well uh, down at the airport for that, that particular role for troopers coming in and out. Everyone going to the airport there on the troop would come in by military transport. It was all by bus, you know, so they couldn't come into the normal air terminal like normal, it was done at another location. All the baggage was specially tagged so that you knew that it was to go on the aircraft of that. So it was all really tightly controlled, getting on the aircraft and the aircraft out of that, uh, that location. So that was pretty intense uh, on those. And then when I wasn't doing the trooper flights, then we'd be out patrolling the whole TAOR, the, the area of responsibility within Akrotiri, on active uh, patrols, heliborn patrols, vehicle patrols, foot patrols. So it was really intensive. I don't think I saw the light of day for about a month uh, because I'd be in the operations centre during daylight hours, out with the troops at night, then some sleep, and then start all over again. I also planned the defence for Olive Harvest as well, the uh, the American installation with the U-2. So I had to liaise with them and then plan out, and we built the defensive positions around their installations because they had various installations on the peninsula just in case they became a threat as well, because obviously that would have been a really high-value target to take out the... Uh, that, that, that asset in, uh, in Akrotiri. Yeah. And that went on for my last month of my, my tour there. And, and I believe if I remember rightly uh, the terrorists blew themselves up, uh, up near Platras on the way to Trudos up where the, uh, the radar installation was up on the hill there. Uh, so obviously the threat was credible, but there was quite a bit of that going on. You had people being assassinated in Limassol and things like that. And, I think less than a year later, we actually had an attack on the base down at Ladies Mile Picket Post where it was mortared and machine gunned and we had several people injured there, children and, and some of the wives, uh, when we had an actual attack not long after that. So that previous threat was obviously, you know, came to fruition again later on where they, they actually got to carry out what they, they intended to do. Um, but that was after I'd left. Same with the Beirut bombings and that because we, we dealt with all them when the Americans got bombed you know when their their barracks got bombed because all the casualties flew into uh entire criteria my wife dealt with them at the hospital she was a nursing sister there as did the 34 squadron they they ferried the uh the injured from from the uh the aircraft to the hospital but yeah so that that was an exciting way to end my tour to be honest um with with that it was uh you know an operational you know few weeks against a, a known threat
1: yeah I think people don't Necessarily, realise the the various different terrorist threats that uh, British forces were under. I think some people are familiar with the IRA, but certainly people are less familiar with those bases in Cyprus and their sovereign status, and uh, obviously the you know the the threats that that were out there as well.
0: Obviously, the the whole of the, the Middle East brewed up then, you know, with Beirut and and the Lebanon and all that, and. Yes, Arafat was under pressure, you know, he was within the PLO, he was under leadership problems and people were out to get him. So that whole world was starting to crumble a bit uh, when I was there and, and crumbled even more so after I left, but it was really starting to brew up at that time. So there was a lot of tension there. We we had, a I used to exercise along what was called North Ridge and on the north side of the runway was a, a big berm that ran the complete length and that was my Basically, my station internal security role should become under threat. And I had my headquarters was in a converted, I used to convert the back of a four-ton truck, and we had a nice convenient location at the end of the threshold to the end of it where um, where we'd do our job. And I'd be up all night, the troops getting patrols and organised and everything, and then I'd have to try and sleep during the day. The only problem is that during the day was when air operations took place. And when you had a, um, a terrorist alert, especially if there's a SAM threat the pilots used to do what were called tesseral takeoffs, you know, to counter the surface-to-air missile threat. And at that time, we had phantoms and lightnings, and they used to take off, and then they'd stand on their tail and hit full reheat right where my headquarters was. So I used to never get much sleep during the day because all I'd have is jets standing on their tail on full reheat, you know, doing tesseral takeoffs. (laughs) Yeah, I should have. The problem is if I decided to go down the other end, the wind would change and they would take off down the other end, so either way I'd probably lose. <laughs> like Berlin, Cyprus was another great place. In the eighties, it was a fantastic place to be. And that was my first tour. Yeah, it was a straight out of the factory. My first tour was out into the Mediterranean. And uh like Cyprus, like uh, Berlin, it was a fairly unique little place and uh and had Great social life, great work life. It was just uh, a really good place to start your tour, you know, uh, place. So it was, a uh, yeah, another den of iniquity,
1: uh, Cyprus. <laughs> Can you tell me about your involvement in the security of Britain's nuclear weapons? Britain's had its own nuclear capability since the 50s. And the Air Force also got that uh,
0: similar capability, especially with the V-Force bombers and latterly after that with uh, the tornado and the likes so we had our own nuclear assets I was over in Northern Ireland at the time actually with the airborne unit in Aldergrove in October of 86 when the boss called me and said there's a short job that we want you to go and do over in the UK to do with sd-814 which is the the, the name that was given to the how we secure the 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 weapons in in UK uh, and it was only going to be a short two to three months type of job. So I went over and I was initially over to RAF Abingdon where the uh, training people are. Uh, and basically I was to do a training evaluation on how the RAF police guard our nuclear assets because they, they'd had them for a long time. they have been going since the 50s, but there'd been very little update to how they actually defend the, the weapons, their tactics, their skills, their military skills training. So I was sent over there to do that, and uh, I did a, a job analysis, and I, I toured most of the the main operating bases which held our nuclear weapons, and they were held in uh, places called supplementary storage areas, called SSA's, uh, which were highly secure installations where we we kept our our nuclear weapons. So I, I did a basically a, a job analysis of that to try and determine what scope of training or or how I was going to redesign their training for them Uh, and that was all done before I actually got to the RAF Police School at uh, RAF Newton and that's where they did all of their SD814 training. Once I did that I then went and joined them on a small team myself as the regiment specialist and then there was a, a, a police flight lieutenant and two RAF Police senior NCOs who would look at the RAFs polices aspect of the SD-814 training, whereas I would look at how I was going to improve their military skills to bring them up to the 21st century, basically, or 20th century at that time to to get them as as well trained as we could to defend those weapons uh, at that time.
1: I guess the threat profile had changed over time as well, particularly since the 1950s, because you you would have... Obviously, had a potential special forces threat, but also you've got the terrorist threat appearing there as well.
0: Our, our wartime threat was obviously from Spetsnaz type of threat, you know, special operations coming in for for that infiltration or even targeting laser targeting for you know those those assets there especially from 69 onwards with the, you know, the advent of the Troubles in, in Ireland brewing up again, we, we did have a, a, a terrorist threat as well uh, on that side. More so for the guys that were, I think, transporting the assets off base because we had, a, there was a specialist unit of uh, Royal Marines, uh, some regiment involved, and then specialist personnel that and equipment which, transported the nuclear weapons both naval and RAF from uh, where they were being serviced to the location that were being stored so for them that was an even bigger threat the terrorist threat for us during my period it was probably more a conventional threat though we were living at that time under a very increased terrorist threat from Irish terrorists.
1: Can you tell me how the the training evolved in terms of how how what changes did you make Uh, in order to increase that military readiness
0: A, a lot of the changes that i looked at was obviously weapons skill weapons training is a big part because obviously you need that competency you're in amongst nuclear weapons now if you you shoot into one it's not going to detonate the nuke but you could cause problems there so you need to be very very proficient in your your weapon training skills I then also looked at the, the, the tactics involved when they were moving the the weapons on base from the supplementary storage areas to the to the aircraft. So you looked at it at a tactical point of view. So we, we took the training from probably was for the basic police training from a couple of weeks to 12 weeks long. Um, so increased it massively uh, there. And a, a, probably a good portion of that six weeks was probably weapons training and range work. So we took them up to infantry standard uh, on all the weapon systems, from their pistol to their submachine gun to their SLR. For the girls, because a lot of RAF um involved, they weren't supposed to use the SLR. They would just had the pistol and the SMG. And I wasn't happy about that because we would have find that the girls would lose out in several weeks of training, and we'd have to figure out what the hell we are going to do with them. So I, I put it to them, say, do you want to you know, do you want to learn how to use the SLR? And at that time, they said, no problems. And, and the girls were great at that time on, on that. No, extremely enthusiastic uh, uh, on that. So they did all the training that everyone else did on, at that, that time. By the time we got to training, we were running 12 courses simultaneously. So they would start a new intake. So it was obviously a boom period for SDY 814 in uh, that 86 to 89 period. And we were running, as I say, 12 courses simultaneously. So I, I had to, and range time in, in the UK is of a premium. So I devised to to write four training specifications so that f- a block of four courses would come together to do all of their weapons training at once so I could maximise that effect. But it was, it was redesigning their tactics, looking at their tactics. I had a training area built. I had a, a small, the old World War II bomb dump at Newton there, I thought was an ideal place to make into a, a replica of a, a, a supplementary storage area. And that was right on the northern end of the uh, the, the airfield, and there was a, a back road that ran to Nottingham. And I had this thing built with all the double wire and the big fences and all the signs and everything like that. And then we suddenly started seeing in the papers the local CND, you know, Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament Group, suddenly getting up in arms and articles that a new nuclear weapons storage facility being set up at Newton. And it caused quite a stir in the local papers when I, I built this because it was in full view of the, the public driving past. And uh, so our, our local activists and campaigners got up in arms about uh, this supposed nuclear weapons dump that we we're, <laughs> were building at Newton. But uh, it was just a small training. So little things like that because what they used to do is they used to travel all the way to Makrahanish up in the Mull of Kintyre because there's a, a disused supplementary storage area up there that would have housed American weapons. And they used to have a small SEALs team up there to guard those. Also happens to have probably one of the longest runways in Europe at Macrahanish, which is probably little known amongst the, uh, the the general population. So they used to travel from Nottingham all the way up to the wilds of the and Tire to do their, their practical training, which was enormously expensive in, in time and, and assets and money. So Bringing it down to the station proved to be a, a boon and a bonus. But yeah, but mainly it was tactics and uh, and weapon training to bring them up to speed. And then obviously the police looked at their technical aspects on how they guarded those weapons. They kept that to themselves because that's their bailiwick, you know, and, and their, their their way of dealing with things. And and obviously when you're dealing with nuclear weapons, things are very classified in, in what is it's doing. And, and the need-to-know principle is... Applied even when you're working within the the organisation, and uh, so I stuck to mine, and they stuck to theirs.
1: Yeah. So you you were concentrating on like perimeter defence.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They're basically the skills to defend themselves and the
1: uh and the
0: installation.
1: Yeah. Basically. I don't know whether you can tell me this, but what what were the sort of rules of engagement if somebody did cross the wire and try and enter? We had
0: our our standard rules of engagement in the um throughout the air force in the military at that time both for peacetime and wartime and your yellow card and um that that gave you the uh, the criterion which you could use deadly force it was very much up to the individual they had to justify the use so i went through many many meetings with the uh, the hierarchy, both from the police and the regiment, when I was going through the the course design work, and uh, especially amongst the police, and they were wanting, what about this scenario? What about that scenario? What about that scenario? And as I said to them, I said you could have you could put two thousand scenarios down in your rules of engagement. The poor little lad had come up against two thousand and one, so you have to keep them fairly open. Uh, and as I say, there was there was set rules for the engagement and. It was up to the person on the ground at the time to decide whether that was, whether he had the, uh, it was legitimate to do so and he'd have to justify his actions afterwards or her actions afterwards on that. But uh, within that, it was our normal rules of engagement. They didn't change from, you know, what the rest of us had. It just for them, they were dealing live armed all the time and obviously had a responsible job for guarding our, you know, uh, one of our most important assets when it came comes for, uh, for, for deployment of weapon systems in the Air Force.
1: And I guess you you' you know it's not purely somebody coming across the wire, but you're also looking at a possibility of an airborne attack on the installation as well.
0: Anything is possible in time of war, definitely so and that's where the regiment would be there. You know with our uh, low level air defense and uh, our ground assets to try and defend against that and the the air force and their their combat air patrols you know to take out any hostile military threat but you had the possibility obviously of of a civilian you know threat of of someone trying to crash into it to try and detonate a weapon which is highly unlikely because they're within bunkers within the the s s a so but you've always got that sort of that threat as well from a a civilian terrorist type threat the RAF police and the RAF regiment are in the security branch together we're sister organizations but there is no love lost between us Uh, and for me in that job i had to tread a very fine line all the time to try and not it it was a diplomatic job and when we got the training going within the, the the military world the army the regiment we have a very particular way of training people and especially within weapon training and if you make a mistake it's 10 press-ups get down and give me 10 and what that does is that builds up upper body strength and it's also a little mental jogger that if I make that mistake again I'm going to get another 10. I got called into the wing commander's office one day because one of the officers had uh, decided that we my staff and I were bullying the policemen by making them do press-ups and and Various other calisthenics when they they make an error in training reinforcement that we used to do So starts called into the boss's office. He says Trev, <clears throat> there's been a complaint about you and your lads beasting and and terrorising the troops by making them do press ups and that. I says, boss, it's a part of the training. It's it's how we you know we reinforce the training by this by a little bit of punishment and also it builds up upper, upper body strength and it's used by every military organisation in the British forces. He says, show me where it is in the pamphlet. He says, not in the pamphlet, boss. Yeah, it's not there. He says, stop it then. Not allowed to be done. Okay. So I went back to my troops and I says, look, been a complaint. Boss has said we're not to to stop all the press-ups and any little things, you know, for the infractions that the troops give them. And uh, so he put our heads together. And in the PAM 7, the SLR manual, there's a thing called pokey drill. And pokey drill is where it's it's upper body strength, conditioning. And uh, so you can handle the SLR, which is a heavy weapon, and uh, and you can handle, handle it competently in every position that you have to do. And in some of them, you hold it by the barrel and you have to lift it up to shoulder length and then out to the front of you and then down. And it's extremely painful. No one in the military likes poke drill at all. And there's lesson after lesson after lesson. So I introduced pokey drill into it and then lo and behold the same officer who complained about us bullying his troops went straight back to the wing commander and said boss boss they're doing it again they're bullying the troops so this time i went up when i was called up to the boss's office armed with my pam seven the slr pamphlet he says trev i had another complaint about you and the troops bullying the troops I said, no, boss we haven't been bullying the troops what we're doing is pokey drill He says, what's that this is here you go sir pam seven you know, the army manual for for uh, for the SLR, here's several chapters of it. He went, okay, Trev, you win this time. Then after that, what we'd do to the troops was, if they made a mistake, we says, do you want to do pokey drill or do you want 10 press-ups? So we'd give them the option. And everyone to a man and a woman says, I'll take the 10 press-ups. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, little things like that. But generally speaking, for that job, for me, when I went over there, I wasn't happy about going to do the job because I was coming out of an operational tour to go into basically an admin tour into something I'd never done before, didn't know anything about. And the regiment didn't want me to do it. And the police didn't want me to do it. So I don't know who instigated it in the first place, but no one that I knew of within the police hierarchy and the the, the regiment hierarchy wanted it. So I I was stepping on eggshells all the time. So I, I... I realised really early on that I had to have a very good mindset that I'm working for the police. I'm going there to do what they need. I'm not going to turn them into little rock apes, little RAF regiment personnel, which is what the police thought I was going to do, and I'm not going to turn them into rock apes because that's what the regiment thought I was going to do. So I'm going to turn them into people that are the best trained people to defend these weapons during time of war or terrorist threat. So for me, it was a really, really difficult job and one I wasn't looking forward to. And I instilled the same sort of ethos in all my troops that came in because the R.F. regiment and the police, as I said before, there's no love lost between them. And there is this it's not a love-hate relationship. It's normally a hate-hate relationship. So I handpicked all of my troops that came in to, to do that role because it was important to have the right people and the right mindset to do it. So it just didn't blow up in our faces because as a rock ape, we're going into the Lion's Den, the RAF Police School. It's a place that no regiment officer or, or, or NCO or gunner would ever want to be in. So I had to instil in them as well that, you know, this is a very diplomatic and very de- delicate, you know, job and you've got to have a particular mindset to make it work. And thankfully, I take my hat off to all my troops. They made it work brilliantly, which was was great. And I went from... Really resenting going there and and not wanting to go there to it probably being one of the most rewarding tours that I did in the end because I started off with a blank sheet of paper and ended up with a uh, a very productive training organisation within the police school.
1: When you mentioned the CND protesters earlier did you have much trouble from them at your training
0: no no we didn't we didn't it was just more within there was posters went up around the place and uh, it was mainly in local newspapers is chunterings about what's going on in RAF Newton yeah you because know, obviously they would have known that the RAF police you know defended you know our nuclear assets because it was you know reasonably well known so yeah no it's mainly posters going up on, around lamp posts and that and uh in the local towns and in the uh in the local papers basically but we never had any protests or anything like greenham or anything like that yeah nothing of that nature
1: because i think prior prior to this uh posting you were at greenham common yeah can you tell me you know what 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 that was like
0: yeah, I was there basically during 85 and 86 when I was with Two Squadron and RF Regiment. We were based at Lavington, which was only not far away from Greenham Common. Um, and we used to go there. We'd do about one week every couple of months. I was looking at my diaries, and and I think in 86 we did six Roulons there. And you had, with the 501st um, Tactical Missile Wing, which was the... the, the Ground launch cruise missiles. There, you had um, USAF security police there, but also as a joint unit with the RF regiment. So the RF regiment uh, personnel were posted into the 501st, and their job was to look after the cruise missiles themselves when they deployed out the ground. Um, our job as a Rulamont unit going in, and it was army units and uh, the regiment units would go in there for a week at a time. And we would basically um, augment the 501st and do patrols. We'd have static positions around the gamma, which is where they they had their their cruise missile stored in about, I think, four or six bunkers, I think, there within the gamma, which again, like a supplementary storage area, was extremely well-secured and guarded and live-arm guarded. And basically, our job there was to stop the peace women from entering or trying to get access to the Gamma. Because if they got access to the Gamma, they would have been shot, you know, without a doubt, because, they were, because of the nature of the assets. We'd also have a quick reaction force there to deal with uh, uh, the peace protesters. Because what you've got to realize is from the start of that, they had, I think, nine or 10 peace camps, one at the front gate and about nine, I think, in the woods around Greenham and Common, and there were thousands of peace women who lived there. Some of them lived there for the complete time, the whole time, and for years after the, the cruise missiles left. So with the thousands that you had there, at the weekend, you'd get the weekend warriors would come in from all around, and suddenly you'd have an influx of 30,000, 40,000 peace protesters would descend on the wire, and they would think nothing of just all getting on the wire, rocking it back and forth, and they would snap the wire down, you know, kilometre after kilometre of it. And it was our job and, you know, army job and the first job to try and then, and the military police, uh, the civilian police, uh, to try and detain as many uh, as you could. Some of them were good, you know, uh, some weren't. One of the tactics they used which really offended the, the, uh, the troops is they'd sit down, but what they'd have was menstrual pads would be taped underneath their armpits used so when the lads would come and pick them up, it was obviously an extremely unpleasant uh, situation and that the troops were not enamoured to that uh, at all. But it was a soul-destroying job. None of the troops liked it. None of us liked doing that Graham Common job because it was just a soul-destroying job for the troops. It was mindless and and... Depressing, it really was. You know, we operated out what was called the BMO, the British Military Operations Centre. So we were separate to the Five Hundred First. There, it was an interesting experience, but one that none of us
1: really enjoyed. So essentially, your role was to try and keep them away from the US lines of of defence. And did the US security police have a different rule of engagement then? I don't know
0: what their rules of engagement were. They're, they're all live armed within the the gamma there, and. Knowing the way the Americans operated, lethal force probably would have been pretty pretty swift if anyone got into the gamma um but but all the girls were different, you know, you had friendly ones, you had obnoxious ones and and also we were there as a like a, a observation post, a first line of observation as well as the cameras and everything of of something brewing up so you could then try and get the civilian police in, the MOD police in to try and stop things from happening before they got out of control. Um, so we were eyes and ears as well as a, a reaction force as well uh, to support
1: the, the fibre first. So there was some dialogue with the peace protesters?
0: Yeah, the guys used to speak to them through the fence. Yeah, yeah. They'd see them downtown as well if they had time off and they'd be down the pub at yeah, Melton Mowbray. They'd, uh, you know, they'd see them down there. Yeah, it was a strange situation. When you were there, there was a, a duress code in case you got yourself into trouble and was held under duress. And uh, I was called out to, while we we're there to go and take the squadron standard, our our standard, to a big dining-in night of all the bosses so it could be flown there. So I got military transport back to, to H, Lavington, to collect that. And Julie took it to the headquarters and flew the flag for the night and then came back and I told them Jan will bring me uh, back. We don't have married two years, and we had this horrible gold marina with a cracked windscreen and sound like there was a cat wrapped around the diff, made a horrible noise. My wife had at the time had a nineteen eighties perm blonde hair, and when she drove me back, she was wearing bright red dungarees. <laughs> and we got to the main gate, and the MOD went, "No sir, I showed him my ID." Sir, how you doing, good? He says I'm just going to the BMOC. No, sir, I don't think you are. Yeah, who's this with you? He says, That's my <laughs> wife. He says, well, how, are you really sure, sir? And he's he's quizzing me and quizzing me and waiting for the duress word to come out to say that I'm under duress. This is a peace woman trying to get into the camp. <laughs> and uh, eventually, I think Jan got her her driver's license out and says, Here you go, you know, Jan Howie, Trevor Howie. You know, this is my wife. I'm not. Been kidnapped by a peace woman and she's trying to get in, but it took forever to try and get in because the guy just did not believe that this this woman was uh, was my wife because she was dressed the same as a lot of the, the peace women were. Brilliant. There was another one on base where the guys in the, the 501st, first so they used to travel around in buses to get to work, and obviously in the eighties the, the lads were discussing about the latest episode of Dallas, talking about yeah. you know JR and all that, and suddenly. QRFs and armed response came from everywhere and surrounded the bus and what the lads had forgotten was the code word for the duress code word for that day was Dallas so who in the 80s had, had decided Dallas was an appropriate on an American base in the 80s when Dallas was one of the highest you know viewing shows at the time that that would be an appropriate duress code words
1: don't miss the episode extras such as videos photos and other content just look for the link in the podcast information the podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters and i'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road if you'd like to help the project just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate the cold war conversation continues in our facebook discussion group Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week.